if you are not famous, you will probably not have a biography written about you. Or if it is written, it would be quite short. For many of us, perhaps the only biography we'll have written on us will be, say, on our tombstone, maybe a little phrase or a name or our dates. I remember years ago seeing a Western, I can't remember what it was, and they had a close-up at a ramshackle, wind-blown um, Western town in the middle of nowhere, dust, and there outside of town was a small cemetery with little um, makeshift tombstones created by wood, and on one of them it read, Here lies Wes Moore, and then came his biography. No less, no more. That's all he got. That's all he got. And yet if you're famous, you have long biographies written about you, often with photographs, this sort of thing. So if you're really famous, you'll have a multi-volume biographies perhaps written about you. I have a biography of Abraham Lincoln. It's three volumes long, many hundreds of pages for each of the three volumes. Today, we're going to read a biographical word about another Abraham. We looked at him a little bit already in Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to continue today. As I say, Hebrews 11 is a chapter, as most of you know, with short biographical studies of people known for their faith. Now, these stories are highly condensed, but still, space is allotted according to the relative strength of their faith. And so, Abel and Enoch and Noah from ancient times are each given one verse, although their faith was powerful. Abraham receives eight verses today, more than anyone else in the chapter. Today, we're going to look at verse 11 and 12, which include his wife, Sarah. Now, the English versions of Hebrews 11, uh, 11 and 12 vary slightly. I'm going to read it from the New International Version. You may be aware that the NIV was retranslated and re-edited some time ago. This was from the original early NIV, which some of you have, but it's not available now. And later in the time, we'll compare it with other versions. Hebrews 11, verse 11 and 12, from the original New International Version. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. He's speaking of God, of course. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Picture someone flipping through a photo album while friends look over his or her shoulder. Oh, there's a picture of my parents. Oh, there's me when I was little, and there's my brothers. And this one, oh, this is me and my brothers when we've grown up and our wives are, are sitting beside us. Oh, there's a picture of my nephew. That's the way that photo sharing goes if you have a family album. Well, back in Genesis, where the story of Abraham is told, chapter 11, there was somewhat of this photo album effect. Uh, Abraham at this time was still named merely Abram, which means something like a, a, a great chief, great father. His home was in this immense city of Ur in Mesopotamia, which was idol-ridden and pagan as all get out. And Hebrews 11 lists Abram's family while he lived there. 
his father and his brothers and his sisters-in-law and then his nephew and it lists he himself and then comes in this little family list family photos a little verse of huge significance from Genesis 11:30. it says now Sarah was barren that is an unbearable disaster in that time not to be able to have a child a quick sidebar about her name her name was spelled S-A-R-A-I for much of her life. Later, God changed it to the more familiar Sarah. Because the, uh, whenever I've seen S-A-R-A-I, uh, Sarai, Sarai, it just sounded funny. I had never read her name in Hebrew. I just looked it up this week. It's um, Sarai, which sounds a lot better than Sarai or something like that. So I'm going to try to say it like that because the sound of her name change later on in her life is intriguing. If I blow it, please forgive me. Somewhere along the line, as Abraham and his barren wife Sarai lived in Ur, God appeared to him and said, Abram, leave your country, your people, your home, and go to a land that I'm going to show you. I will protect you. Anyone who blesses you, I'll bless Anyone who curses you is going to hear it from me. And furthermore, Abraham, the entire earth is going to be blessed through you. He must have been wondering, the entire earth blessed through me. How's that going to happen? Am I slotted to do some great deed? Am I going to accomplish some magnificent history-changing feat? Am I going to write something that people will read all over the world? And then Abraham Abram, sorry, was explained to by God as to in what way God would bless the whole earth. Abram, you will become a great nation. And if Abram is to become a great nation, that means that his wife, Sarai, is going to have children. And so we read that Abraham set out. Sorry, I keep calling him Abraham. His name is Abram this time. Forgive me. I'm not going to say forgive me again, but uh, you get the idea. I probably need to say it again. So when he set out, he was already, we read, 75 years old, and he did not know where he was going. He had no child, but doubtless, since God had promised him a child, he probably thought it's going to happen relatively soon. <clears throat> Later, God appeared to him a second time. This is now spoken once he reached the land of Canaan, well over 700 miles away, closer to a thousand. God said this, he renewed his promise and he added a new element. He said, Abram, not only will you become a great nation, but your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. And he meant that they would be uncountable. And the Bible happens to say that Abram was wealthy in livestock. There's a reason for that. Of course, it's because God has started to bless him. But it seems to me there's another reason. And that is, Abram had huge flocks, which say that some years had passed in order for his flocks to grow. He had walked over a thousand miles. He had lived there several years while his flocks grew. Now, a full two chapters later, where even more years were ripped off the calendar, God made a promise for the third time. In Genesis 15, God said, I'm sorry, let's start with what Abram said to God. Abram said to God, Yahweh, that is Jehovah, you have given me no children. 
so I think that the servant in my household will be my heir. It was a normal practice in Abram's day, and there have been documents found from other nations around there where if a child was not given to a certain couple, that they could take a slave, they could adopt him as their son, he would continue to serve them as a servant all his life, but after they died, if they died childless, he would be their heir and receive all their possessions. And so Abram is doubtless disappointed that he's going to have to get his um, chief, his prime, his head servant to be his son, but at least all his possessions are not going to go to a stranger. God listened to Abram describe the plan that Abram had in mind of how it was going to be fulfilled that he would have a great nation. And God said, no, that man there, he will not be your heir. And now God adds a new element to the promise. Yet your heir will come from your own body. Now to foster Abraham's faith and to grow it, God waited till night and he said, come outside. Abram went outside, and since he lived in a time unlike us where you can see a multitude of stars at night, God said, look up. He saw the constellations. He saw the sweep of the stars. He clearly would have seen the Milky Way. And God said, can you count them? No. Then, just like you cannot count these stars, no one will be able to count your descendants. They will be so many even though your wife, Sarai, is barren. And so God told Abram to take several animals and to cut them in half and set them on either side to make, as it were, an aisleway between them. And then God, in the form of a fire, himself walked between the cut animals. This was an ancient way of conducting a covenant. In the Bible, it usually uses the term when people make a covenant, it uses the term, they cut a covenant. This is the picture behind it. Animals separate it, and both parties walk through. And it means, if I fail to keep my side of the covenant, may I be butchered in the way that these animals have been cut in two. Only in this case, God did not ask Abram to walk through them. God himself walked through the animals. He was saying, I am laying my very existence and deity on the line that I will fulfill this promise to you that I have made. We read in Genesis 15, Abram believed God. This is the kind of verse that when you're reading through the Bible and you come to in Genesis 15, you tend to stop and read it a second time. It's the first mention in the Bible of exactly how people are rescued from hell to heaven from death to life. Although Abraham obeyed God in many ways, the Bible is clear, Abraham was not saved because of his obedience. He was saved, as it says in Genesis 15, God counted his belief as righteousness. God credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved by faith in what God told him. Just like today, you must be saved by faith. It is possible that you might be here and tend to think of Christianity as primarily a religion of obedience. And indeed, God does call us to obedience. And indeed, any true Christian will obey him increasingly over the years. But if you're inclined to think that the way a person becomes a Christian is to get to where you obey a certain amount and finally it all kicks in, you're misunderstanding what the Bible says. The Bible says that the way someone becomes right with God is to believe what God has said. And in our day, what God has said is that the way to him is through Jesus Christ and faith in his death, 
on the cross. Well, time goes by. And by the next chapter, Genesis 16, we read that 10 years have gone by in Canaan since God first gave the promise. Abram is now 85 years old and has no kids. Now, Abram had believed God when he made the promise, and so Abram might be willing to wait, but his wife Sarai is not willing to wait. She just will have none of it anymore. Things are not happening. Somebody's got to do something. Now, we know from the scriptures that Sarai was still attractive, and yet even though she was still attractive for her age, a thin waist was not what she was really craving. What she was craving is something else. And so she complains to Jehovah, to Yahweh, and says, the Lord has kept me from having children. So, Sarai took a fateful step. It's just spoken of briefly in the Bible, but it is, it is earth-moving. She said to her husband, Abram, sleep with my maidservant, Hagar. Now, Hagar was an Egyptian. And Sarai said, perhaps I can build my family through her. Now, to us, this is odd. It's even beyond odd. It's just a little creepy almost. But it was an acceptable custom. And examples of this are found, again, in documents of countries all around there of how a child of a couple who was childless, they could take a servant girl and she would become a secondary wife, a concubine, and the father would father a child through her. And then the servant's son or daughter would become, well, if it was a son, would become the heir of the family's wealth at the end. In fact, more than that, that the servant's son or daughter would be considered the son or daughter of the wife who had given to her husband the servant girl. And since that was acceptable custom in that time and perfectly legal, that is what happened. And thus, Sarai, through her impatience, because God was simply not coming through, decided to take matters into her own hand and pressured Abram to take the servant girl. Abram agreed. Now here's what happened when this family took matters into their own hand rather than trusting God. Terrible family tensions resulted. Hagar began to show. And when she did, she changed her entire demeanor. She grew to have disdain for her mistress, Sarai. Her tone probably became disrespectful she became slower to obey. She made Sarai's life miserable by taunting her, at least with her facial expressions and her actions, if not with her words, I'm pregnant, you're not, my boy will become heir of Abram's and your money. What do you think of that? Now Sarai was terribly upset. Family tensions grew to a boiling point, and she became so harsh with her servant girl, Hagar, that Hagar fled. She fled into the desert, and we read that she took the road to Shur, which is the road down to Egypt, which was her background. She only returned back to Abram's tents when God met her in the desert, assured her she'd be okay, assured her that her boy would be okay, and she went back at his urging. And so when she came back, Hagar bore a son, and they named him Ishmael. By now, 
Abram is 86 years old. But Ishmael was not the one who was promised, for God had said it will be somebody from your own body. And what happened was this became misery for Sarai over the next many years. Eventually, it became miserable in this way. Hagar's son, Ishmael, became the father of all the Arab tribes. And the Arab tribes became the inveterate enemies of the Jews in ancient times, and it continues till this very day because of her having a better idea than God of how he was going to fulfill his promises. Now we read that another 13 years goes by. And so in Genesis 17, Jehovah appears to Abram again. He is now 99 years old. God repeats the promise. He repeats it at greater length. And he uses even grander language when he says it. Abram, you will become the father of entire nations. You will be extremely fruitful. And this promise I'm giving to you and your descendants, it will last forever. It will never run out of time and be nullified. And to be clear, Abram, something that he had not made clear before, I will give you a son by your wife. She, we read, will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. We tend to think at this point, Abram must feel really good. But 24 years has gone by, and he's a tired man. And he's awfully fond of his boy Ishmael, who by now is about 14, 15, 16 years old. And Abraham's fond of Ishmael and could see that because he's bonded with him, he'd be glad to give him the promise. And also, so much time has passed, and I and my wife are so old. Are we really up to this? And so amazingly, in chapter 17, Abram prays to Jehovah, and he says, I'm reading from the New Living Translation now, please let Ishmael be the son whom you promised. But God said, no, surely your wife will bear you a son, and she will do it this time next year. Abram believes. But when Sarah heard this, she laughed. And God confronted her and called her on it. Why did you laugh? She said, I didn't laugh. He said, yes, you did. How would that make you feel? And so God, because he had told Abram, and now it was clear to Sarah that she would be the mother of the son, God said, it is time to change your names. Sarai, you will be now known as Sarah. Both Sarai and Sarah mean princess. But the name of a change anyway, the change of a name anyway, was simply to show, it seems to me, that a new day is dawned. And from now on, for ease, I'll just call her Sarah. Abram, your name will change. Your name means exalted leader, exalted chief, exalted father. Now you will be called Abraham, which means father of many. So how did the story end? Well, it ends in chapter 21, finally. 
Genesis 21 begins, Now Yahweh was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised. Sarah was 90 years old. Abraham was 100. They had waited since God had given the promise 25 years. And so Sarah said, who would have said to Abraham that I would nurse children? And so at God's command, and it was a delightful command, Abraham and Sarah named the boy Isaac, which as many of you know, means laughter. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And thus, her laughter of doubt eventually became a laughter of joy. So, what did we learn from this? Why did the Bible tell us these stories? These stories are so deep. I, I feel like a, a ship on top of the ocean rather than a submarine near the bottom floor because anything you say is just scraping the surface. But a few things from the surface. One, let's remember why this account of Abraham is given in the book of Hebrews. You may recall from the end of chapter 10, the Hebrews book was written to Jewish Christians who had come to believe Jesus was the Messiah. They were taking an enormous amount of heat from it. Their families were disowning them. They were losing their homes. They were not employable anymore. And they were facing real persecution that would eventually end for some of them in death. They came to think, Is it, are God's promises true? Where God promises to defend his people and to love us and, and to help us, he doesn't seem to be helping us very much. So, if that's why it was written to the book of Hebrews, it's also why it was written then to you who are reading it today. What has the Scripture promised? I mean promised to you as a Christian that you have been clinging to, but that has not come true yet, and perhaps for a long time. It may be something fairly simple. I'm really hoping for a pleasant year at school this year. It may be a real hope concerning a relationship. You claim the Bible's promise, Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. But perhaps that relationship that you were so hoping for has never started or has been wounded and has never healed and God's promise in Psalms seems not to come true. Perhaps you were hoping for a child and God hasn't given you that. Or perhaps for ease, for some pain of a body or mind that you would give anything to be relieved from. Perhaps some of you have long wished to have a job that you really enjoy, but instead you have to grind it out at something that merely pays the bills. And for some of you, perhaps it is that you've had to move to Pennsylvania from another place that you dearly loved and you miss your home state and you would give anything to be back there. Well, we could speculate about why God delays giving us the desires of our hearts. We can think of some things that are true and they sometimes encourage us, but not always. Well, it improves our character when we have to wait. Yes, it, yes, it does, surely. And it makes us hungry so that when God answers prayers, we enjoy those things even more. Yes, that's true and that's good. And it's good to remind ourselves about that. And yes, 
when He makes us wait, it keeps us from taking things for granted. All of that we give, but ultimately we don't know why God makes us wait so long for the things that we so wish for that He seems to have promised us. What we do know is this. He wants to be trusted. He loves to be trusted. It is for our good we know that He makes us trust Him rather than giving us the things we would love right now. And we know that He asks you as a Christian to reject the doubts that whisper in your ear constantly, and if necessary, to ten times a day reject the doubts that the devil whispers in your ear. God has given you this passage for the same reason he gave it to those original Jewish Christian readers. It is to keep you faithful when it seems that God waits forever to give you what you wish for. Second reason why this passage is here is to show us that faith in a Christian can be real even when it is quite weak. Do you remember that we read this passage from the early version of the New International Version of the Bible in English? It goes like this. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, wasn't able to become a father. But in the original language, in the Greek in which Hebrews was written, the word Abraham is not written out. He's not named. The New International assumes that the verse is talking about Abraham because Abraham was the subject of the previous verses. And the verbal form that he uses, in the, the writer uses in this verse, can be read either that he was enabled or she was enabled. And so the English Standard Version represents what by far the majority of scholars believe, and I think their reasons are compelling, too detailed to go into here. It reads like this, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age. This verse, of course, is about both of these people, but it is primarily here in verse 11 through the lens of Sarah and her faith. Now, please forgive, this seems arrogant, but I would propose there's an even better yet way to translate this, and many versions agree, and it goes like this. There's a word that even the English Standard Version, which is quite literal, has left out. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Even Sarah, who laughed when God first told her she would be a mother and denied it because she was embarrassed before God because it showed that she had absolutely no faith at the time. Did her faith ever falter? Oh yeah, and God went out of his way to talk about it in Genesis, and we read about it today. And yet, her faith came back. She got it back. She worked her way through to it, and she's commended in Hebrews for her faith. It is remarkable that she believed she would have a child when she was 90 years old. And you may recall that she lived a life primarily of faith. She followed Abraham a thousand plus miles to a country they did not even know where it was going because God had said to Abraham, I'm going to lead you somewhere good. She proved to be a woman of faith. And as we said, her skeptical laughter 
turn to be joyful laughter. Now, regarding your own faith as a believer, you may have really blown it. You may have come through times when you said, God, I, do you really even exist? Are you really even there? I would dare say in a crowd this size, there are a number of people in this room who are saying that thing very much today and perhaps said it this week. Well, what God would call you to do is to remember, Sarah, that God saw the little flicker of faith that he had planted in her soul, and he tenderly blew on his spark. He tenderly nurtured it. He tenderly gave it little kindling, little paper, little straw until a little flame came up and gave it sticks and finally gave it some, some bigger sticks and finally some logs until her faith really blossomed. He, he asked you to pray the prayer that is in Mark chapter 9 during the life of Jesus of a father, another father who had a boy who was epileptic and demon-possessed and went through horrible suffering. And he asked Jesus, he said, if, if you're able to heal this boy, would you do it? And Jesus said, if I am able, do you believe that I am able? And the man said, Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I don't doubt that some of you are here today primarily to hear that verse from God. Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And finally, we learn from Hebrews 11, it seems to me, that faith is ultimately about Christ. Here's how Hebrews puts it in verse 12. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, that is 100 years old, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Of course, he's talking about the Jewish race. Abraham was the father, as most everybody knows, of the Jewish race. And Jewish people are now scattered all over the world. Even in World War II, when Adolf Hitler killed five million Jews, they are still everywhere, all over the world. Millions and millions, like the stars of heaven, like the sands of the seashore. But the Bible makes clear that the promise that Abraham would have a multitude of descendants is far broader than just the racially Jewish people. The Bible makes clear that believers in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, whether they are Jewish or Gentile, everyone who believes in Jesus is an offspring of Abraham. Galatians 3 verse 7, writing to Christians, God says this, those who believe, that's you, are children of Abraham. Christianity has long been the most widely spread religion in the world. It is no accident that one comes to become a Christian by faith. Galatians 3 verse 9, those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Christians are those who believe that since God has given us his dearly loved son to be crucified on the cross, God will also, along with Jesus, freely give us all things. And that's what we're here to celebrate in this supper right now with the ushers come forward.